you'd even get my vote for president at this point. You guys will be my campaign team. There we go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the only bad decision you probably made all day, Professor. So. Ladies and gents, welcome into your favorite podcast, talking all things career, money, and business, the Free Retiree Show. I'm your host, wealth manager, Lee Michael Murphy, and I'm alongside interview coach and Silicon Valley mentor, Sergio Patterson. What is up, everyone? And Silicon Valley's favorite attorney, Matthew McElroy. What's going on? For today's episode, we're going to be talking about what is going on with the economy. With everything that's happened last couple of years, people have a lot of concerns. In March of 2020, Congress passed the CARES Act, which provided $2.2 trillion of economic stimulus, and Congress issued the first moratorium as part of the CARES Act. The CDC stepped in after the expiration of the CARES Act and moratorium to issue its own moratorium, which has been extended numerous times. Shortly after, President Joe Biden came into office. The $1.9 trillion American Rescue Bill was signed and passed into law. And recently, President Joe Biden extended the eviction moratorium out to October. And this was a move done to help roughly 6 million families with roughly 15 million people within them who are behind on rent. So, guys, are you guys concerned with everything that's going on? What are your guys' thoughts? I think that there's a lot of moving parts and I don't fully understand all of them. And so hopefully today we can get a little bit more insight on what's really going on. Yeah, there's, there's been a lot of money printed over the last couple of years. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the kind of trickle down impact. I think it helped a lot of people out. But my concern is what, what happens when it goes away and what, what do people do? So for this discussion, guys, we have an amazing guest for you. We are privileged to have world-renowned professor Lawrence Kotlikoff. Lawrence is a professor of economics at Boston University. In 2014, he was named by The Economist as one of the world's top 25 most influential economists. He's been an associate professor at Yale. He's attended Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania. He has very popular articles that you see all over the web, Financial Times, Bloomberg, Forbes, Vox, The Economist, Yahoo, Huffington Post. And he's also co-authored a New York Times bestseller, Get What's Yours, The Secrets to Maximizing Out Your Social Security. And he's been the co-author of 16 books. And his next book, Money Magic, An Economist's Secret to More Money, Less Risk, and a Better Life is coming out January. Are you guys just pumped to have the professor on today? <laughs> Definitely. I got all kinds of fun questions about the economy. <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting. I think it's good timing, right? Yeah, exactly. Everyone's got a lot of questions and we got one of the best to come on and present for us. So we're going to take a quick break. But before we do so, make sure you like our show, share us. If you have questions for us, financial related, career related, legal related, or even a question for the professor, send them to ask at the freeretiree.com. We're going to take a quick break. But when we're back, we're sitting down with Professor Lawrence Kotlikoff.
Welcome back into the Free Retiree Show. We are sitting down with the man, the myth, the legend, Professor Lawrence Kalikoff. Professor, how are you doing today? Great, great to be with all you guys. It's an honor and a privilege to be sitting down with you. I'm a big fan of your work. I know the guys are as well. We love what you're doing in the world of economics. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure and any honor and any time. Yeah, let's, let's go for it. So, Professor, first question, current state of the U.S. and the global economy, what is your take on it? There's all these articles that come out every single day. Everyone's got a different perspective, guess, but none with the credentials that you have. So want to hear, like, what's your thoughts on everything that's happening right now? And then we'll get your take on the path you think we're headed down. So things are pretty fragile with the Delta variant and with the thing raging out of control. We have something like 100, 000, close to 100,000 new cases. I think our peak was maybe 200,000. We have, still have about 5 million fewer people employed than we did at the beginning of the pandemic. So the big wild card here is, are we going to be able to get this back under control? Now, fewer people are dying, but a lot of people are getting hospitalized, and clearly the vaccinated are getting infected. The economy right now, because we don't have this under control, we don't have a game plan, it's very fragile, and you could have the tourist industry go back to where it was, restaurant industry, people will not be driving, transportation will go down and retail. So we could see another major decline in the economy. And we had around a 30% decline in the first, the second quarter of 2020. So it's very dangerous. And uh, then you've got the Fed having printed a huge amount of money, as you were saying, and uh, Lee, that, and uh, I guess Sergio, we have been, you just enunciated $4 trillion worth of spending against COVID. We've had another $4 trillion we're about to spend another $4 trillion between the infrastructure bill and the additional spending bill that the Democrats have. That's $8 trillion. Most of this is being deficit financed. And so what the Treasury does is says, well, we have to pay for this stuff to send people checks. We have to build bridges. So rather than tax, we don't have enough taxes. We're going to just print up orange pieces of paper, which are called bonds, sell them to, we're going to sell them to Matt. He's going to give me money. I'm going to use that to go buy the bridge or give the transfer payment. And so now a different Matt has gotten the money back. So the, the amount of money has gone from orange papers going to Matt, green papers going from Matt to me, the government. I've now taken my green paper, put it back in the economy. We have the same amount of green paper out there, but we have more orange paper because you, Matt's still holding the orange paper. Then the Fed prints some green paper and buys and swaps it for the orange paper. Now we have more green paper than we had to begin with. We have the bridge being built and is being built by printing green paper. That's money creation. That's the way it works mechanically. And this honk, this convoluted process is so that none of us can really see what's going on. None of us can really understand. Now we've printed a six-fold increase in the money supply it has happened since 2008. And in addition, the speed at which money is circulating has slowed in more than half. So we have the, the prospect right now, the capacity to have a 12-fold increase in the price level. And you're starting to see inflation take off. Now, a lot of that is supply chain issues, but we've had 5.4% 5 increase in prices. And Sergio is kind of raising the question, how is this all going to get paid for? 
Well, anybody has money just lost 5.4% of the purchasing power. They just suffered a tax over the last year, 5.4% of the purchase of the value because they're getting, they've got nominal dollars and they're now worth 5.4% less in terms of hot dogs. If you, Matt, if you own bonds, you're the lawyer, right? You probably have the big net wealth, right? So you probably have long-term government bonds. They're worth, you lost 5.4% in real terms from those bonds this year, but just over the last 12 months. This month could come in at 8% inflation. I don't know how much it'll be, but it could be a very high number. And now what happens, so when inflation gets into people's heads, like I have a small software company, we have this terrific uh, financial planning software we might be able to talk about to help people, but we haven't taken any price increases for five years on our main project. And now I'm saying, look, prices are going up. I just gave my guys a raise, but they just lost it through inflation. So I have to, I can't keep my prices where they were. And I also know, and this is the key thing, that other people are raising prices and therefore that my customers will not get upset with me if I raise prices, they'll understand where I'm coming from. So what you now have is a setting where everything is opportunistic price increases. So, and that could have kind of a produce a vicious cycle. People see prices going up, they go up even more than expected maybe. And then people start saying, well, I need to take another price increase and another one. And Jerome Pratt Powell, who's the chairman of the Fed, can say, well, we're not going to let prices go up beyond 2% a year, but they've already gone up five and a half, five and a quarter, 5.4% in the last year. So he doesn't have control. And at some point he'll lose credibility. He should have already. He's a lovely guy, a brilliant person, a great chairman of the Fed, but the Fed doesn't have uh, kind of uh, immediate control. Of, well, what, he, what the Fed has is very blunt instruments. They could produce a recession, but we already have kind of, we're heading towards a recession right now as I speak. So that's not gonna help. So he might be right. We might not have another recession. Prices may not go up or they may go up any further or much further. And then, but ultimately we'll get back to Sergio's point, which is that we've been printing so much money, running so much debt that the ground for inflation, the, fr the foundation for inflation, for really hyperinflation it has been laid. I'm not a registered Democrat or Republican. I ran, actually ran for president in 2016 as an independent, as a write-in candidate. Yeah, I mean, one of the things you talked about was that we might be heading towards a recession. Like, what do you think would trigger that? Like, what would be the straw that breaks the camel's back on? I think it's really the Delta. I think it's the Delta and the Lambda that's possibly coming. I mean, we have 90,000 last time I looked, new cases a day. It was down to maybe 10,000 a few months ago. So from 10 to, this is exponential growth right now. Anybody who doesn't have a vaccine, and, and even people that do have a vaccine and walk around without masks, at this point, given the Delta and the, given the, that the vaccinated people can get uh, infected and be non-symptomatic, uh, uh, they, they are putting other people's lives at risk. And that wasn't the case two weeks ago. I understand the situation, but the last two weeks, things have changed dramatically. And we now have to realize that we can be killing people. Professor, I was curious, you mentioned we were talking about how you were a write-in candidate and I was looking at your plan and I, I probably would have voted for you if I saw this. I saw this plan, to be honest. I was curious, the real tax reform really stood out to me. This is one of the first like 
solid tax reform plans that I've seen. Like, I'd be curious, like, how feasible or, or real do you think this could be where you talk about eliminating personal income tax, corporate income tax? Those are some pretty big revenue generators. I'm just curious just to learn more about the real tax reform and your thoughts there. Yeah, sure. Well, let me just say in general that economists have been studying this. There's 20,000 economists. And when it comes to building a bridge over the Hudson River, the federal government, the Corps of Army Corps of Engineers, so forth, would be involved. They would get civil engineers, people that are real experts in building bridges who've done it to design the bridge. In Congress, we have five, something like 550 members on a single PhD in economics. So, and nobody with any background in public finance. So, so you can imagine, so we have a complete Byzantine system with all these different subsystems of taxes and benefit programs and bad taxes because you earn more money, you lose your fruit stamps, that's a tax. You lose your Obamacare subsidies. And then the tax system includes benefits like the earning of tax credit. So it's a mess. And what we want to have in the end is the right amount of revenue so we don't endanger basically expropriate our children beyond what we're already doing, which is horrendous. People like, when I might say our children, I'm thinking about you guys, actually, because you're, I'm 70 and you guys are probably 30 uh, from what it looks like. All right. That's about right. Well, uh, that's actually, uh, makes me feel good. I'm 36. That's, that's generous. <laughs> well, we appreciate it. <laughs> so, so what we need to do is get, a, get the right amount of revenue we have three criteria, get the right amount of revenue, have the, pro- the system be at least as progressive as the current system, at least as fair and equitable. And actually, the super rich need to pay their taxes. That's, so we have to go beyond the current equity. We have to absolutely make sure the super rich pay. Their, they pay zero taxes right now in ways that I can explain quickly if you want. I mean, I'm talking about billionaires, not talking about millionaires. There are 20 million millionaires out there, but the billionaires pay nothing because they have a very simple way to do it. They just, well, I'll tell you, they, they borrow against their wealth. And so they invest in things that have capital gains, accrued capital gains that they never realize. They never sell those assets. So they never uh, realize the capital gains on their taxes. So the money accumulates and they just borrow against those assets to pay for their yachts and their, all their consumption. And they borrow at low rates because they got a lot of wealth. So they're very credit worthy. And then when they die, they leave the money to their kids with no capital gains tax due. It's called a step up in basis. This is how the super rich absolutely avoid taxes. This is why Donald Trump is is afraid to reveal his tax returns because he hasn't paid taxes. Well, we know now that from the New York Times revealing it, that for many years he didn't pay any taxes. This This is one of the many tricks, but this is a principal trick and it's a fair legal, it's a legal trick, it's not a fair one. But it's a legal trick that, or let's say, legal in the sense that it's perfectly legal. Anyway, so we need fairness. We need the right amount of revenue, but we also have to have work incentives. There's an article about marginal taxation. It shows that the poorest 20% of our country are in marginal tax brackets of 70% or higher. So, Matt, if you're facing a 70% marginal tax, so every dollar you earn, you lose in benefits, you lose in tax, extra federal income taxes, you lose in state income taxes, you lose in excise taxes, uh, you lose in sales taxes. All these taxes uh, net of 
the benefits that you're also losing benefits potentially or getting benefits. Some programs you actually get benefits if, if you're poor enough, you earn enough money. At the beginning, you get benefits. So, so it's a subsidy, not a tax. Anyway, 70% tax rate or higher, would you work? Suppose you're in a 90% marginal tax rate, Matt, would you go to work tomorrow? You go surfing, right? You do something. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> something else, definitely. <laughs> so, or you'd stay on the government's dole because if you earn more money, you're going to lose it. So it's not worth working. So we have to get these marginal tax rates down. So back to Sergio's question, the best way to test all public finance economists agree is to tax consumption. And you can have a, a retail sales tax. You can have a what's called a value-added tax, which every developed country except the U.S. has, which is actually very much like the corporate tax. So it could be our Republican members of Congress, they would buy something if it had a different name because they don't really understand why they're opposed to the value-added tax, except that the Europeans have it, except it somehow is connected with French fries. Uh, and so if we call the value-added tax something else, but implemented the same way, and again, it's very similar in terms of implementation to what the corporate tax rate, you could take the U.S. corporate tax and immediately turn it into the value-added tax and just call it the corporate income tax, a revised corporate income. So now we have, let's say, a retail sales tax, federal retail sales tax, a federal value-added tax, and then what's called a progressive consumption cash flow tax. And how does that work? Well, all the money that you get in from any source less all the money you invest, the difference in a given year is your consumption. So I would tax that cash flow consumption measure at progressive rates. So up to uh, like $100,000, you pay nothing. Beyond that, you'd pay marginal rate up to about 30%. So we would be taxing every the super rich, everybody's, the rich, the consumption, the spending of the rich at a 30% rate, and we would tax them on their worldwide consumption, not just on their domestic US. So if somebody goes to Antigua and lives there on their yacht, well, we would tax all their spending that they're doing in Antigua, including the value, the imputed rent on the rent that they're in effect paying themselves from this yacht. So uh, a large part of the spending of people, the consumption is on housing. So people have these five mansions and each one of them, they're in effect paying rent to themselves because uh, they could otherwise be renting it out. So, so, they're, so that's a form of consumption services. We have to impute that. Very simple thing to do. Our national income accountants have been doing it for about 50 years in terms of measuring our GDP. So it's trivial. We can fix this overnight. All I need to do is be president for a couple of weeks and we'll have a fix. Now, the last time I ran... I was clearly too young. So, <laughs> you know, you can fix our COVID you, problem and tax problem. You got a row, buddy. Two weeks. That's awesome. We can fix banking in about a, a day and afternoon. <laughs> we can fix social security. We can fix um, healthcare. Can you throw healthcare in there? Yeah, I wrote a book called The Healthcare Fix and have written a lot of, and it's also discussed in the, in the Your Hire. This is not, and it's not just me. I'm not like some miracle worker. I just am old enough to have looked at all, and I'm interested enough problems that I study lots of issues. Like right now, we're working on carbon taxation this morning, global carbon taxation and how to do it right. And, but I also am humble enough to know I don't know anything. 
I don't know everything. So I have to talk to other economists and see what they, so I've, in writing this book, I asked all the top health experts, what's your reform plan? Banking. What do you guys think? You're the finance, the banking experts. How should we fix those security? So I looked at all the different reform plans and it's not that my proposals are necessarily a consensus view. Generally, I, I don't go with a, t- a crowd, but I go, if somebody said something that I actually had wrong or figured, had a better idea, I went with that. So these proposals, I think, are the best economics has to offer. They're not the best Kotlikoff has to offer, but they're the best economics has to offer. And we should be paying attention to the civil engineers when we're building the bridge across the Hudson. It's that simple. Professor, I want to ask you about the long-term impact right now with everything that we've done. And people are concerned with their retirements right now, just because we've printed a lot of money. Does it matter? Does it not matter? I mean, I think you and I talked in a previous discussion about modern monetary theory, and you had some pretty strong opinions on it. But, you know, there's uh, there seems to be two ways of thought right now. Some people are really scared of everything we've done. And there's some people that like, well, we're just printing money. It's fine. We'll figure it out. But how do people plan for their retirements? And what do you think the long-term impact has been from everything that we've done? Oh, okay. Well, let me just really quickly on modern monetary theory. I would call it a stupid monetary dribble. Not, <laughs> there's no theory here. These people don't know any theory. I've talked to the very you know, top people. I've debated with these people. And I can tell an economist from a thousand feet away, these people are not economists. These people are hucksters. So... Let's just, but as for retirement, how do you plan for your retirement? The key thing is we have to take into account what economics says, which is entirely different from what Wall Street is, is selling, the snake oil they're selling, is that you have to look at your resources, your current and future earnings, your 401k, your negative resources, things you have to pay for, like your house, uh, the mortgage, putting your kids through college, any off the top fixed expenses. And basically, you look at all this stuff. And also incorporate the taxes, and you figure out a smooth living stand, a, a plan so that you can have a stable living standard if you live to your maximum age of life, which is, you know, for most people is 100. So economics is very clear, going back 100 years, that what we're focusing, what we need to focus on is consumption smoothing, having a smooth living standard per household member. That's precisely what my company's Maxify.com plugging your resources. Two seconds, a half a second later, comes back. Here's your spending path. Here's your saving path. Now let's figure out safe ways to raise it. Let's think about intelligent ways to deal with social security so that you get higher benefits over your lifetime. Let's think about how to handle your retirement account so you get higher, lower taxes. Let's think about things like Roth conversions, prepaying your mortgage. Whether you should take, whether you should go to this college, can you afford it or not? Professor, that's a really good point. We have a lot of listeners in that demographic. We've had some people talk about the mistakes made around the money, you, the debt you go into. So I'm aligned with you there. That could be a whole other show, but that's a tough situation for a lot of kids. Every Sunday, whatever. A lot of topics here. I mean, banking is a fascinating topic. What happened? What really happened in the Great Recession? Do we really have a handle on what went on there? I think everybody's got the wrong idea. And but there's a very simple fix for banking. Healthcare. How do you fix healthcare? Very simple fix. I mean, each of the proposals that I ran on is 10 bullets at most, because I realize that if you're going to communicate to the public, you can't, and you can't put out a, a very complicated plan. They'll never get adopted or they'll get screwed up. But you keep it very simple. 
And it doesn't have to be complicated to fix the healthcare. It can be 10 simple things. Um, and anyway, back to retirement, there's lots of ways that people can get a higher living standard by A, not losing money, not making dumb mistakes about going to college, dumb mistakes about how to repay your student loans, and dumb mistakes about career choice, dumb mistakes about jobs, dumb mistakes about not participating in 401ks, dumb mistakes about taking Social Security way too early, dumb mistakes about investing at too much risk without understanding how risky it is, and being sure that the stock market is safe in the long run. That's one of the dumbest mistakes out there. There's absolutely no evidence of that. Indeed, all the evidence points the other way. So part of part of there's a whole lot of tricks for how to make money safe without even, you know, putting any money in the stock market. I'm just talking about making money safely. This is what economics brings to the table that because we have this technology now that can figure out your living standard, but then internally in the program, that robo optimizes your living standard, but then you can also manually uh, try things to get your living standard to hire this path of your living standard. And it's all just using the tax system, the benefit system, housing decisions, state income tax, where you live, career choices. So, yeah, I think, yeah. And now to the question that you're, I don't know whether we want to talk about it here or the next se- se- uh, different segment, but Social Security is in terrible trouble. And yeah, we need to be saving a lot more than we think. And we have to stop making dumb mistakes about retiring early. The baby boom generation showed up in retirement, having thought that the government having taken like uh, 15.3% of their pay in Social Security FICA taxes for Medicare and and Social Security, and the employer putting in money uh, in the 401k if they could contribute, participate, that those two entities, those two father figures were going to take care of them in retirement. But they were woefully wrong. And now with these very low interest rates that the Fed has manufactured, real rates. So all these people are retiring early, thinking that somehow uh, life is made for them because they did the right thing. They participated in the 401k. They paid their Social Security. Now retirement is secure. It's not. They have like three years of earnings on average in terms of the net wealth and they're facing penury and old, you know, poverty in old age. Uh, so they should really, be, if anybody's still out there working in their young 60s or late 50s, and you're thinking about retiring early, forget about it. It's financial suicide unless you're one of these super wealthy people. Don't do it. That's one of the things. The book is very hard nosed, but you know it's coming from a good place. So. It, it's going to waste. One of the chapters is called "Marry for Money." Who writes a book that says "Marry for Money"? Right? Well, I did. So, uh, yeah. So, economic-based financial planning. You seem to be a big advocate of that. Do you think that this is an answer to the future retirement planning problems that we may face? Yeah, you can see exactly what's going on. If you retire, if you tell the program you're going to retire at sixty, and says, "Hey, your living standards down here." Well, let's run another case profile where I retired 65. Hey, it's up here. It's 15%, 20% higher. And I'm running this at age 30. It's 20% higher from age 31. I don't need to save it. If I retire at 60, I have to save a bundle, a huge amount, because I've got five more years of retirement to finance. 
So this is a way of having a higher living standard right away, planning to retire later. I think there's something a little deeper here that's going on. Why is it that we are all, that so many people are screwing up this decision? And the reason I'm coming at this from this angle is that this is one of the many topics that economics kind of covers that you wouldn't necessarily ever think about in your daily conversation if you're not an economist. But think about the fact that, Lee, that you're, you're now, let's say, I'm going to make you 35, okay? Thank you. That, that helps me. All right. <laughs> 35. Now, the question is, do you really give a damn about yourself when you're 85? Or do you think of that person as some other person who's, not, who's somehow disconnected? You may psychologically say, that 85-year-old hasn't done a damn thing for me and is not going to ever do a damn thing for me. So... I'm not going to do a damn thing for him. And that, but you have to realize you're the fiduciary, you're the parent of that 85 year old version of you, of Lee, mm-hmm. and you have to take care of them. And most people are, seem to think that the 85 year version of them is not them, <laughs> is disconnected, is some different person. And we call this in economics other selves, people who think that they have multiple selves that they have. Their current self, but then they've got this other personality in effect in their body that's going to be there, but that they don't treat them as them. And that it's like a game between the two parties inside their head. It's almost like a model of schizophrenia. And that's, we have people getting, writing theses all the time, and a whole lot of work done on this under the title hyperbolic preferences and similar things. It goes back for a decade, like 60 years of research on this particular topic. You never hear about it. Matt, have you ever heard of this? Right. So when you think about it, it starts shining a light. The light bulb goes off. Gee, I really have to be responsible. I have to worry about that person. That person is my child, if you like. I'm totally responsible for that person. And if you put it that way, now maybe you start to change your plans. But you can also think about, I mean, think about a lower stress job where you work longer. Does that produce as much lifetime spending as a high stress job where you work shorter? It might. It might lower your taxes because you're not in so high a tax bracket. You're not clumping all your income into this high tax bracket. You're, you're, low, you're smoothing out your tax bracket. That's basically the idea of using retirement accounts to try and leverage these Roth and, and deductible accounts, the 401k, the IRA, traditional IRA, to try and get a smooth living standard, uh, sorry, a smooth tax bracket, not to pay at a uh, high rate, 35% this year, and a zero rate the year after you retire. That's crazy. You want to have your income taxed on average, maybe at like 20%. And that's what the four, so there's lots of things. So economic planning can do this, Conventional planning can do none of it. Conventional planning can only send you down the wrong path because it's based on a methodology that has no connection whatsoever to economics, has no connection to consumption smoothing. Uh, It's all built around how to sell product to the public from Wall Street. That makes a lot of sense. Everything you said, I mean, basically, we have to be conservative. We can't be thinking that we're going to get to the moon with and everything's going to go just peachy because you know history shows us that there's a lot of risk when it comes to investing and you can't plan your retirement out like it, everything's going to go great and your portfolio is just going to keep killing it. 
I think just on that, just a really quick idea that that I put talk about in my book. It's called uh, upside investing. So, upside investing is a way that I think most middle class people like us should be thinking about how to invest, which is put a certain amount of money, say, in the stock market, and you have some there. You're going to add to it, and then you have a plan for when you're going to take it out, and you forget about it. And everything else you invest in absolutely safe inflation index bonds or I bonds, which are an even better uh, way to invest safely. And um, actually, before you do that, you pay off your debts. The, the smartest investment, the safest investment today, the highest yield investment is paying off any student loans, car debts, mortgages, credit card debts. That's an absolutely safe a clear way to, to make a, a killing in the market is just pay off your debts. But if you've got, if you're kind of debt free after that point, then investing in a uh, safe inflation index bonds, which unfortunately right now are yielding basically a negative return, but the, it keeps your money at least safe from inflation. So you don't lose four and five and a half, 5.4% every year. Anyway, now you've got a floor to your living standard. And the, the money you have in the stock market, once you take it out, you invest it safely. So now you can permanently raise your living standard. So this is called upside investing. Here's your floor. And then at some point, if there's any money left in the stock market, you haven't lost it. It could you know, go to zero, but very, very unlikely. You start to have a higher living standard. And for this period, your living standard basically goes up like that and then it's flat. So these are all upside trajectories. So the key is to have to treat putting money in the stock market, like investing in the casino. Uh, sorry, going to the casino. When I go to the, I've been to the casino a couple of times in Vegas because I had to go to a convention. So I went with my wife and what we did is we left our wallet in the room, the hotel room. We took a hundred bucks each. We spent a couple hours losing it all and then came back. By leaving our money in the hotel room, we were securing our living center. That's our living center floor. The money in the casino had we made anything, we would have not spent it until we left the casino, until we got all the money out of the stock market. This, so this is playing the stock market like we play the casino. So you secure your living standard, and then everything else is upside. I think that's the way to think about it. And so if you want to have a higher living standard floor, you can't put as much in the casino. You can't put as much in the stock market. And this is a way to think about uh, this very simply and never see your living standard drop of course, if you get, if you become disabled, if you lose your job, if you have to help your sister who becomes disabled, life has all kinds of downs as well as ups. So nothing's for sure, but this part of your life, you can, you can basically rationalize and get straight. Well said. Professor, thank you so much for coming on our show today. Your students are very lucky. We're very lucky to have you on, but you've been an am amazing person to listen to. Well, and it just, it's like if you're hearing about how to build a bridge across the Hudson, if I were hearing about it, I would be sitting here fascinated, but I'm not the only guy who can do that. There's zillions of civil engineers, plenty of terrific economists out there. We just don't get much airtime because most of us are a little too nerdy to talk in the public. <laughs> hey, I'd even get, you'd even get my vote for president at this point. You guys would be my campaign team. There we go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and that's the only bad decision you probably made all day, Professor. So thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to the Free Retiree Show. So long for now.
securities offered through Securities America Incorporated. Member FINRA, www.finra.org. SIPC, www.sipc.org, a separate entity. Lee Michael Murphy is licensed for the California Department of Insurance, license 0H18660. Lee Michael Murphy is a investment advisor representative with Securities America Advisors, a registered investment advisor. The Free Retiree, Securities America Advisors, and Securities America Incorporated are separate entities. Career Advisor Sergio Patterson, Attorney Matt McElroy are not affiliated with Securities America Advisors or Securities America Incorporated. Securities America Advisors, Securities America Incorporated, and its representatives do not provide tax or legal advice. Therefore, it's important to coordinate with your tax or legal advisor regarding your specific situation. The content heard in this podcast is not intended to be tax, investment, or legal advice and is intended as general guidance only. You should contact your own tax advisor, financial advisor, or attorney to answer questions about your specific situation or needs before acting upon this information. Third-party source information or comments are not verified, may not be accurate, and are not necessarily representative of all client or audience experience. A portion of this event was paid by a third party. The opinions of career advisor Sergio Patterson do not reflect the opinions of LinkedIn Incorporated or Microsoft Corporation. The opinions of attorney Matt McElroy do not reflect the opinions of Castaneda and company.